Just last week, I just want to say again, um, back in Simi, the commissioning service was a great time together. And the commissioning, what I learned, if you've never heard that word before, is a word that means something that is given to a group of people, a charge to accomplish something. So if there's a commission, it is something that's almost commanded. It's being passed down from one person to another. And that group of people are charged to do something. They're charged to accomplish something. And so when we're saying that the church in Simi commissioned a people to, to go here to Rancho, we're saying that this is part of a charge, a command, a part of a mission that we're on. And I was reflecting on this reality. It's an amazing reality. Uh, last week as the church gathered and we prayed and we sent out uh, a group of people to come to this new location and participate in the gospel work that Jesus is doing here, I was reflecting on this reality. And the reality is this, that this has always been happening. That the church has always been on mission. The faithful church of Jesus Christ from the moment it received its marching orders in Matthew 18 up to today, has been moving and has been commissioned. And this is just normal for churches to do this. And I hope one day in the future, and I can't ever give a timeline, that we would continue this work by sending maybe missionaries, maybe planters, or maybe church revitalizers, or maybe pastors, and maybe another team to another church that needs help. Because the church is always moving. The church has been commissioned. And if you're in Acts, there's a, there's a word in the first verse of the first chapter that points to a reality that kind of thrills me that I've been thinking a lot about in the last few weeks. And so if you're in Acts chapter 1, this is one of those verses that you kind of gloss over as you get to kind of the meat of the book of Acts. And you might pass over this without thinking twice about it. But he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, this is Luke writing, who of course wrote the Gospel of Luke. He writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus was the man he was writing to, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Let's just stop right there. The book of Luke, written by Luke, and now the book of Acts is being started by Luke. And there's this amazing thought that Luke has as he begins to pen the book of Acts. He's saying to Theophilus, he says, I wrote this whole other book. It's called Luke. Theophilus, he wrote that to uh, or Luke was written to Theophilus as well. He says, I wrote this first book, Theophilus. And in that book, the Gospel of Luke, which I'm sure you've read, he says, what I dealt with in that book was all that Jesus, and there's, there's this word that could startle us. It definitely causes us to pause and think about what does he mean here. He says, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, if you're Theophilus and you're reading this second letter, you know, you just received Luke and maybe you read through the whole Gospel of Luke. Luke, in 
it has everything that you would want to know about Jesus. It has his birth. It has the the great story that we read around Christmas. All those things that are happening during his his birth and his entrance into the world. It has some story of his early childhood. It has his life's ministry. It has the cross. It has the resurrection. It has the commissioning he gives to his disciples. And what Luke now says, writing his second book, the book of Acts, he says, that first book I wrote you, that was just what Jesus began to do. That was just the beginning of Jesus' work. Now I'm going to continue, and he begins to write book the next book, book two, the book of Acts, and the implication is, is that here's the p- next part of the story. And you go, well, wait a second, Jesus isn't really in the book of Acts. He's there maybe in chapter one, then he ascends into heaven, and then he's not there anymore. But the point, of course, is very clear that Jesus is building his church. Matthew 16, he made the promise he would build his church in Acts is the story of Jesus very much at work in the church. He is building His church. He's leading His church. He's causing His church to advance. And you see it happening as the apostles, filled with the Spirit, now bring the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. You say, oh wait, you're saying the the Gospel of Luke was just the beginning? Yeah, it was just the beginning. And Acts is kind of the next part. And even the book of Acts kind of ends with a cliffhanger where Paul's put in prison and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the implication is clear that the work's not done because the gospel must go to all nations. Now that's amazing that Jesus in the book of Acts is being put forth as living, as involved in the church, as guiding, as saving, as advancing His church. Now, if you want to see how the story ends, you could peek at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. That would be kind of the bookend. If, If Acts is the beginning, or Luke is the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, and then Acts, He ascends to heaven, but He continues working in the church through the Spirit, you say, well, how does it end? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. If you want to peek there, you can. This is us sneaking into the throne room of heaven, and it says in verse 9 that after this, John, he's seeing a vision. It says, he looked, and behold, there's a great multitude that no one could number. He sees like something that's like a stadium filled with people, a great multitude. No one can number. Who are these people? It says they're from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Is a picture into the throne room where we see that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is now been spread to all nations. And the redeemed from all nations have been brought into this great multitude. And now these people being washed in the blood of Christ are shouting for His glory throughout all eternity. And this beautiful image John gets to see, he writes down now for us to enjoy. That's a glimpse into the future. And so if you think about this, we have 
Jesus building his church and promising to do it in Matthew, building it in Acts, we see the end of the story in Revelation where God's people have been redeemed from all nations being gathered. They were once dispersed. They gathered together now. They were once darkened. Now they're brought into the light. They were once completely lost. They've been found. And they're redeemed fully in heaven, united with Christ forever. And the question for us is then, well, where do we fit into the story? So Jesus started the work in Acts. In Revelation, we see there's a day coming when all God's people are home. And here we find ourselves, we're not in Eden. We're not in heaven in eternity. All God's people are not yet brought in. What's our role? We find ourselves in the middle of the story. And right now, even this moment, is God's people are gathered together by the Spirit, under the Word. We must see ourselves as part of God's great global plan to gather in His people from all around the globe. It doesn't matter really how small a church we are as long as we are faithful to His Word in walking in obedience to it, believing in the power of the Spirit, we have a role to play in God's glorifying Himself by the redemption of His people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We have a role to play. And we're here by the amazing providence of God. You've been hearing the stories of how people have come here and why people are here. This is all part of God moving His people together so that they would continue to work in this place for this time for his glory we're here you say well what are we doing here might be the question and if you were to go to Matthew 28 in one of the most popular passages we will find our mission our marching orders it is called the great commission often the great commission that is the great charge given to the church the great commandment given to the church what we are called to do as a church what are we here for there are a lot of things we do but there is only one mission and i want to read this to you if you go to matthew chapter 28 and we'll start in verse 18 and we'll read this little two three verses and we'll single out the main verb that is our mission this very day and for as long as we're here together it says in verse 18 Jesus came to them and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. Now there's different emphases that have been brought up in the ages as people have looked at this text. Some people think the main emphasis is go. And that's certainly a big part of this text. Some people look at the verse 20, teaching. It's all about teaching and that's certainly very important. But the main verb and the main point of the commission that Jesus gives to his church is right there in the middle of verse 19 go therefore and here it is make disciples 
there are a lot of things that the church will do. There are a lot of things that we'll do as a family, we'll do as individuals. But the thing that we must do, and without doing this, we will fail, is that we must make disciples because that's the commission we've been given. We are called to make disciples. I remember hearing a story of a pastor who was making a point, and he brought up a bunch of firemen. My dad's a fireman, he, or was. He was fireman for 33 years, and he would have been on that stage. And the pastor had the guys all standing up on stage, and he went to the first guy. He said, all right, you go to a fire. What's your role? And he goes, well, I'm the one who drives the rig, and I pull it up and get it in the right place. And he goes to the next guy. What's your job? He says, well, I hold the hose, and I make sure that we're getting the right fire out. We're aiming at the right place. Well, he goes to the next guy. What's your job? Well, I'm the captain. I'm telling everyone what to do. And he goes down the list, and all these guys have their different things that they do, the different tasks that they're, they're supposed to do. And at the end of it, hearing it, the preacher up there, and he says to him, he looks down the line, and says, you're all wrong. Now, the firemen are going, no, no, you don't understand. This is what we do. And the pastor goes, no, you're all wrong. He says, your job is to put out fires. <laughs> In other words, if you're all doing your own little job, it doesn't matter if the fire's still roaring. The point of what we're all doing together is to put out the fire. And everyone has a different role, and everyone has a different thing that they can do well, and everyone has different gifts. You see where I'm going here? But everyone has one job, to work together, to put out the fire. Now, this is the illustration for the church, right? You say, well, what do you do to make disciples? Well, I got this thing and that thing and this thing. Well, those are all great we need people to do all kinds of different things for the church. But what's the point? What's the reason? What are we doing all those things for? Here it is. We must make disciples. That's the point. That's the mission. We do a lot of things, but we have one mission. This is the one thing we cannot fail at. This is the one thing that we must make sure that everything else is leading toward and encouraging. It must be that we are making disciples. Which, of course means we must be disciples. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 4. And this is the statement we're going to spend the rest of the morning in. Because if we're making disciples, we need to know what a disciple is. We need to know how disciples are made. And so I want to look at the passage where Jesus calls his first disciples. Because it's in this passage we begin to see what it means to really follow Jesus, what it means to, or what will be the results of us following Jesus, what can we count on Jesus to do as we follow him. And if you're in chapter 4, look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Here's the main text we're going to look at verse 19 and he said to them follow me and I will make you fishers of men immediately they left their nets and followed him and going on from there he saw two other brothers James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets and he called them immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We're going to look at Jesus' statement in verse 19. We're going to break it into three parts, and we're going to examine them in light of what the rest of the New Testament says about this 
these topics. First, we're going to look at his statement where he says, follow me. Then second, we're going to skip to the end of that statement. We're going to look at what, how he says, fishers of men. We're going to ask him a question about what does that mean. And then I want to look, lastly, at the middle part, and I will make you. And so we're going to look at these in three sections, this one statement, we're going to zero in on it, and let's start by this, follow me. Jesus is describing will, what it will be like to be his disciple. He's calling people to be his disciple, and the first words that he are out of his mouth, mouth as he's inviting people to be his disciples are these words, follow me. Follow me. Which means if you today are a disciple of Jesus, that your life is characterized by following him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus would say in Matthew 11, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. See, Jesus isn't mostly concerned about actually changing your geography. He's not concerned about leading you from one place to the other. That's not why he's telling you to follow me as if he wants to just relocate you. It's not about relocation. Jesus is telling people, follow me because he is going to teach them. He's going to teach them something about their lives and who they are and who he is. In fact, the word disciple in Greek is the word methetes, and what this means simply is learner. If you want to be very literal, every time you see the word disciple in the New Testament, you could substitute the word learner in your mind because that's literally what it means. It's someone who's a learner. When you read through the New Testament and whenever you hear, see the verb form, uh, to learn, or someone is learning, or we are to learn, it's a verb form of the same word. Mathano, it's the same idea. Someone is a learner and we are to always be learning. And so to follow Jesus is to, from the very beginning, commit to a life of learning. Are you a learner? Would you say that in your life you are learning more and more about what it means to follow Jesus? Now, there's many ways maybe you could answer that question. And as you read throughout the rest of Jesus' life, as he invites these disciples into a relationship where he's leading them, you see that there's really kind of two ways he's teaching these disciples. First of all, he teaches them by information. And second of all, he teaches them by imitation. And so Jesus is very much concerned about teaching by information. This means he's interested in teaching them new stuff, maybe that they had not understood before. Uh, this is why Jesus, uh, very early on in his ministry, he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching to them. He's teaching them about what it means to have Christian character in the Beatitudes. He's teaching them what the Old Testament says in relation to who he is and what his role is in relation to the rest of Revelation. He's teaching them. You read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching, teaching them ethics. Uh, he's teaching them about marriage. He's teaching them about how to deal with their own sin. He's teaching. He's a teacher. He's very much about helping people understand who God is, who they are, what he has come to do. He is a teacher. Jesus is a teacher and a preacher. In Mark chapter 1, there's a section where he's surrounded by all kinds of crowds, and they're all coming to get healed by him. And Jesus says to his disciples in that moment, he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach 
there also. Why? For that is why I came out. What does that mean? That means Jesus has an agenda to reveal who God is. Jesus wants to reveal who you are. Jesus wants to help you understand this world. Jesus has content for you to learn. He has data to impart to us, to understand more about who we are in the world we live in. But that's not the only way Jesus taught. That's not even, if you're thinking about teaching, if you're a parent, you've done this, you know that to merely transfer information is not enough, right? If you have words coming out of your mouth that contradict the life you're living, how good is your teaching going to be? It's going to be poor teaching. It's going to be hypocritical teaching. And so Jesus is not merely teaching by information. He's teaching by imitation. He's not only teaching doctrine to his disciples, he's teaching them devotion. He's inviting them in to watch his life. Think about if you followed Jesus around for three years. Imagine that. Think of all the things you'd see him do. Think about how he prays to his Father. And you sit in and you listen to how he prays. Could you imagine? Read John 17 if you want to hear Jesus pray. Imagine being with Jesus as he sings a hymn to his heavenly Father, just watching his devotion. Imagine watching him interact with the prostitute or the tax collector. Imagine him with the crowds treating people with tenderness. Imagine watching him reach out to touch a leper. All these things are the doctrine that he proclaimed lived out with perfection in his life. And so Jesus wasn't merely about imparting information. He was about showing you what it means to live, how to live for God. So what do do we do today? So you say, I want to be a disciple. I want to follow Jesus. But where is he? You know, we can't follow him the same way as the disciples did, where we literally walk around with him and follow him from place to place. We can't do that. Well, here's what it means today. To follow Jesus means we take the posture of a learner. And that we commit to learn in the same two ways the disciples had to learn. We commit to learn the information of God's revealed Word, And we commit to learn by imitating His revealed life. You say, well, okay, got that. Well, what what do I do? The answer to that is you become part of a church. Because in the church, God has organized this supernatural institution to be like a greenhouse for your spiritual growth. Because in this organization that Jesus is building... He has set up teachers. He has called elders to be not only men who are able to teach, but able to live holy, exemplary lives. The church is called the pillar and support of the truth. You read the pastoral epistles, and they're all about guarding doctrine, guarding the sound words, making sure that entrusted faith is passed down. It's all about preserving the right content. And so the church is to be a greenhouse where the truths of scriptures are preserved and protected and proclaimed, but also we follow Jesus by imitating him. And so the church is to be a place where we see other people following Jesus too, and we learn from their lives. We learn by imitation just as the disciples did. 
Remember Paul? In following Jesus, he wasn't perfect. Of course, he lived an exemplary life. But he said something that is an amazing statement. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said this. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me, Paul said, as I imitate Christ. God intends His people to learn what it means to follow Jesus by imitating godly people around us. Does that make sense? So God calls each one of us to take the posture of a learner. In our following of Jesus, we take the posture of a learner and we commit to saying, I will learn the content of the Scriptures as God has revealed, but I will also learn by imitating the lives of those who are following Jesus. We learn by imitating. See, truths detached from the life of the church can be abstract and very hard to understand. I had a friend who was uh, saved as a teenager and as a teenager, uh, as he grew up in his home, never saw the Christian life modeled. Parents were not believers, never saw a godly marriage, never saw his dad being a godly father, and it was very difficult for him to imagine what it meant for a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church. It was very difficult for him to imagine teenagers submitting to their parents as unto the Lord. These ideas were very hard. And a few years ago, we went on a trip to uh, St. Louis. There was a church plant there, and we took a team to go help that church, and this friend came along with us. And he came, and we did all kinds of things together, our, our team, as we were in St. Louis. We did street preaching. We handed out gospel tracts. We went to an abortion clinic and pleaded with women not to go in there. We, we did all kinds of things. We helped uh, tidy up the church. We did some painting. We sat around with their church members and shared testimonies. All of it was great. And at the very end of the trip, we asked each one of the persons who had come with us on this trip, what was the most impactful thing for you? Or what was something that you just taken home with you? kind of a debrief time. And we're going, going around, everyone has different things. And our friend here, as it came to his turn, he said, you know, I loved all the different things we did, but the most powerful thing was the fact that for the 10 days we were in St. Louis, I got to stay in the pastor's house. And I got to watch how he treated his wife. I got to watch him lead his children in family devotions. And I got to watch the, the loving wife submit to loving and sacrificial authority. And I got to see loving discipline of the father over his children. He says, I had never seen anything like that before. And that to me, more than all the things we did, was the most formative part of the trip. See, listen friends, this church is the place where the abstract doctrines we believe become very visible. Forgiveness is a great idea, but it's powerful when you've sinned against someone and they look you in the eye and forgive you for your sin against them. That's when these things become real. And so, okay, let's go back to the beginning. Jesus said, follow me. You say, okay, well, how do I do that? Well, we are learners, and what this means is that we're learning the information, but we're also looking around. And where our lives are committed to each other. And insofar as we're following Jesus, we're following those examples. We're learning from the imitators of Christ. And we all, to some degree, as we follow Jesus, ought to be able to say, 
follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If I'm not imitating Christ, don't follow that. But insofar as I'm being faithful to his revealed word and following him in humility and grace and truth, follow my example. And so to be a disciple is to say, I'm here to learn from you, Jesus, and I know you got people to teach me, and I know you got people to show me what this means to follow you. So are you committed to being a disciple? Are you committing to being a disciple here, to take a posture of a learner and say, I'm here to learn the Word, and I'm here to learn from people? Now, here's the beauty of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. When you enter the school of Christ and you commit to following Him, the beauty of this school is that you don't have to earn your approval In other words, you don't have to uh, enter into this merit-based system where if you get good enough grades, Jesus will accept you. It's not that. See, this is a school that does require perfect 100% straight A's across the board for you to pass the final exam, but it's a school that when you enroll in, the teacher, Jesus Christ, promises to take the exam for you. He earns the 100% in your place by living His perfect life He dies for your sins, having washed away all your failures. He promises to credit to your account all His perfection as we then follow Him. See, on our best days, guys, we get F's. But in the school of Christ, He says, follow me. I do it all for you. He lives the perfect life. He dies the sinner's death. He rises again victorious. He invites all people to follow Him. And we, out of love for Him, because He first showed us His love, we say, I'm following you, Jesus. I'm all in. And in this school of discipleship, He passes the vinyl exam for us. We don't have to worry whether God loves us enough. He showed it to us on the cross, right? So we follow Him with our whole hearts. Taking the posture of a learner. Because that's what a disciple is. Would you say that you're still learning Christ? That's what we're all called to be. That you here have taken a posture of humility where we're all learning Christ together because that's what it means to follow Jesus today. Now let's look at the second thing that Jesus says. He says, first follow me. And so that means we're we're, we're being learners. We're going to learn by information, by imitation. And look at this. The last thing is, is, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So the second statement, or the second part of his statement, is that if we follow him, the result, the inevitable result, will be that we are fishing for men. We are fishing for people. And what that means is part of what it means to be a disciple, follow this, part of what it means to be a disciple is that you reorient your life around helping people follow Jesus. Just to put the context in, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they're fishermen. Their entire livelihood depends on catching fish. If they don't catch fish, there's no food on the table. This is their life. And Jesus comes along and he says, he sees the boats, he sees the nets, and it's as if he says, all right, you're, you're spending your whole life spreading those nets and trying to catch those fish. Well, I'm going to reorient your life. And no longer will your life be about fishing for fish. Your life is now going to be about spreading the net and fishing for men. I'm asking you to change everything about your life and what you live for. There's a reorientation now. And what it means to follow Jesus is that you're no longer spreading the nets for fish. You're spreading the nets of the gospel for 
people. And so your life gets reoriented around people once you follow Jesus. Jesus has an agenda for your life or an expected outcome for your life. That as you follow him, remember you're, you're learning the doctrines, but you're also learning the devotion by watching the people who live this out. You're learning this stuff. And as you learn, you say, well, where is Jesus taking me? What is going to be the end game here? Where, what is the end of this progression of growth? Not that we ever end on this earth, but what's the goal here? And Jesus says, you follow me, here's where I'm taking you. That you will now, in following me, be someone who helps other people follow me. And so I want to make this really clear, is that this is not an optional add-on to Christianity. This is part and parcel to what it means to follow Jesus. And if you were to say, no, I don't really help anyone follow Jesus, I would say, well, what do you mean then when you say you're following him? Because to follow him means to help others follow him. Because Jesus said that if you follow him, what he's going to do with you is make you a person who helps other people follow him. It's part of his goal for your life is helping you get to a point where you're helping others follow Jesus. That is his promise to those who follow him. If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. In other words, following Jesus, listen, is inevitably relational. It's inevitable that you will have your life reoriented. If it isn't already oriented around this, your life will be reoriented around people and helping people follow their Lord. See, sometimes we think of this idea that we're supposed to help other people follow Jesus and, and because of the way church culture has been probably the last 80 or so years, we think of helping other people follow Jesus as like some program that we're going to have to sign up for some class we're going to have to take or some event we're going to participate in. And those are all good and those are part of church life. We're going to do some of those things for sure moving forward from here. But what Jesus is saying is that the natural outflow of a Christian as they follow him, the normal outcome of someone who's following Jesus is this. They will love people and they will help others follow him. So it's not a curriculum, it's not a program, it's not an event. You don't need any of those things to get started. You're simply saying, I'm following Jesus and I'm going to try to help other people do the same. Not an optional add-on, it's just part of what it means to follow Him. You say, well, how would I even begin? I know for many of us, myself included, to think that I might be uh, the person that God wants to talk to others about Jesus can sometimes be frightening, right, and intimidating. Let's start with some of the simple ways that the Bible tells us to do this. Here's some biblical ways that you help other people follow Jesus. Ready? Here's one. Show up to church with a proactive plan to encourage someone. Show up to church with a proactive plan to encourage someone. If you ever think church is a spectator sport, where you come to kind of observe everything that's happening and you evaluate based on your tastes and preferences, that's just not what a church is. It's not for spectators, it's participants. And that's what we all are doing as we hear. You are participating in something very profound as you gather. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says this, listen, and let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works. That word consider, that means mull it over, think ahead, uh, put, put some time into this, you know, thinking about how you're going to stir other people up toward love. 
This would be a normal way to help other people follow Jesus, that as you're preparing to attend a corporate gathering of believers, you have in your mind, how can I be used of God to stir others up to obey Him and to love Him better and to do good works? He goes on to say, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is just one way you obey the command to follow Jesus and that you become a fisher of men is you say, I'm going to show up to church and I have a plan to encourage someone. I have a plan to stir someone up toward love and good deeds. Here's another one. Here's another practical biblical way to help people follow Jesus. Let all your normal conversations be sprinkled with truth and love. In other words, there should be some intentionality in what you're talking about to help people talk about the things that really matter in life in a loving way, of course. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Everyone's supposed to do this. And if the church, oh, everyone's doing this, guess what? We're all going to be growing up into Christ. Why? We've all taken the posture of a learner. And we've also all taken the responsibility to help others. And so we're teaching each other. We're learning from one another. There's this amazing passage in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, where Paul's writing to the Roman church, and he really loves this church. And listen to what he says. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and listen to this, and able to instruct one another. Paul loved the Roman church, and one of the reasons was they knew enough that they were able to teach one another, and in their regular informal times together, they were helping each other follow Jesus by speaking truth to one another. Here's a third biblical way. Connect outside the Sunday morning service with your church family. Just connect in other normal places. This is where Paul is speaking to, of his love for the Thessalonians, and he says, I felt like I was a mother among you. That's not something you see. Your mother doesn't see you only once a week on, for an hour on Sundays. A mother is someone who has you in your heart all the time as they think about you and pray about you and spend time with you. Not to embarrass anyone, but the other night we had Jeff and Indra over, and we had a great time, and they were able to share how God saved them from their sin and brought them to Christ, and they sat in our living room, and Ash and I just sat there and just listened to these amazing testimonies of the goodness of God. And they don't know it, but me and Ash were sitting there being edified and encouraged, and we were being helped to follow Jesus because we were reminded again, because we always need reminders, we were reminded again of His power to save, His power to sanctify, His sovereign plan over all the events of earth, and how He's working all things for our good and His glory. And we sat there, we said, praise the Lord. This is amazing. If you read Titus chapter 2, we should see that it should be normal for older men to initiate relationships with younger men to help them grow in their self-control and their obedience to the Lord. Uh, same chapter in Titus chapter 2, older women reaching down to younger women and helping them to follow the Lord in the roles that God has called them to. This should be a normal way that the church does, and it's all happening outside of the normal gathering of the church on a Sunday morning. All this means is that discipleship and helping people follow Jesus is not a program. It's not an event. It's the heartbeat of every member who says, I'm following Jesus. So practically, what does this mean for our church? It means this. You show up to our church, 
And if you say, all right, I'm in. What can I do? Where do you want me? You know, I could say, you know, Greg really needs some help in the back at the sound booth, so help him out. And I could say that Michael needs some other musicians up here, and these things are maybe true. I could say there's all kinds of practical needs around the church. These are all true. But I could also say, so-and-so's having a hard week. Could you pray for them? Maybe take them out to lunch or maybe have them over for dinner. I could also say, you know, so-and-so lost their job. Maybe you can go help them out. I could also say, you know, this old saint in the Lord can no longer drive. Would you mind giving them rides to church? Things like this. Where, in other words, the way to get involved is not merely to plug in and do some task that's totally unrelated to a relationship with a person, but to be plugged in in the life of the church and the people of the church where we are always working together to help each other follow Jesus. And so Jesus says, follow me, and the result of following me is you're going to be a fisher for men. That means you're going to help people follow Jesus. That doesn't mean that we merely do programs. We will do those things, but it means in addition to that, we in, in over all that, the point is that we're helping each other follow Jesus. Even unbelievers, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? Why has God saved us? Why has God given us this role? That you may proclaim His excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's what God has called all of us to do, is proclaim the excellencies of Christ in the gospel. And we do that to people who don't know Him yet. And you say, okay, that's where it gets scary. That's where it gets scary. For me to be telling others the gospel, that's kind of frightening. Or I'm supposed to have a responsibility in this. And here's where I want to finish. I want to look at the middle words. Look at this. Follow me. Here they are. And I will make you fishers of men. Have you ever thought this? Oh, who am I? To be someone who would help others follow Jesus. I could never do that. I don't know enough. Who am I to be someone who could tell others the gospel in a way to bring them to the Lord and experience them getting saved? Who am I? Well, Jesus said, you follow me. And what I will do with you is that I will make you a fisher for men. That you follow me and Jesus will give you what you need to be someone who fishes for men. This is an amazing statement, and we're going to finish here. We're going to finish in John 16, verse 7. If you want to see it for yourself, it's an amazing section of Scripture from John 14 to through John 15 into John 16, where Jesus is talking about the coming Spirit, and He says this statement in verse 7 of chapter 16. You might want to underline this and never forget it, because He says this. He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. You hear that? Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. You say, why would it be to our advantage? The disciples are thinking, why would it be to our advantage if Jesus leaves us? You being here, you can answer all my questions. I got any problem, you could fix it. I'm sick, you could heal me. Jesus says, no, it's to your advantage I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper we know that is the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. If I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Jesus says this, it is better to have the Spirit in you 
than Jesus right beside you. Phenomenal statement. For the mission that we're on, Jesus is saying it is to your advantage to have the Spirit in you empowering you and enabling you than to have Jesus walking along life beside you. Now, I want both, right? And someday we will have both. But for now, we don't get Jesus right here with us. But what we do have is the fullness of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Now, if you have ever thought, I can't do this stuff. I can't help people follow Jesus. I can't share the gospel boldly. I'll gently say to you, don't undermine the Holy Spirit. Don't deny His power. Don't think it's actually up to you. No, the Spirit has been given to you in full measure. And so when Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, He's taking responsibility to do that in your life as you follow Him. So here's the end, guys. We're not at the end of the story. We're not in paradise yet. We're not in Eden anymore. We're somewhere in the middle. Not every tongue, tribe, and nation has been reached yet, but that's where Jesus is taking us. Jesus has commissioned us. He's not done. He's alive. He's the head of the church. He's saving people even now as we speak around the globe. And we have been caught up into this amazing plan of God's redemption. We're right here in the middle. We've been called to follow Him. That means we take the posture of a learner. We've been called to give our lives to people and helping them follow Jesus. This is an amazing privilege. But let's not forget this reality that ultimately Jesus has given us the promise that as we follow Him, He is the one who will make us into the fishers of men that He wants us to be. By His Spirit, by His Word, as we humbly learn from one another and give our lives to helping one another follow Jesus, He is the one who will get all the credit for everything that happens here because he is the one building his church today. We get to be a part of this. And this is what we're talking about all through August and this is what we'll, Lord willing, be living out for our time together from here on out. Let me pray. We're going to sing and then we're going to have a little time again at the end of this to discuss next steps. Let's pray. So Lord, what a thrill. Lord, I just can't get enough of this reality that you are doing something bigger not only than me, not only than this church, Lord, bigger than we've ever dreamed that you are redeeming for yourself your people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And Lord, the fact that you don't need us, but you've privileged us, you've invited us to participate in this glorious plan. We don't deserve this grace, but we thank you for it. We ask for your help as we seek to be faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.